there was a whole system failure and people have died. People have died who should not have died and we've allowed a man to continue to butcher babies, butcher women, and nobody did a damn thing about it. Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah. Hello, hello, hello everybody out there in podcast land This is Karen Wickham, and I am your host of Stat Shocking traumas and treatments coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I am so happy to be talking to you today. And before I get started, I want to give some thank yous to some iTunes reviews that I received. I want to say thank you to Jen Grana and Hecoop1. Thank you guys so much. I also want to give a thank you to three new Patreon supporters. So thank you to Bonnie Lee, who has a wonderful podcast called Whining About Crime. So check it out. Also, thank you to Molly Smith and Elizabeth Day 821. Thank you guys so very much. And thank you to everyone who supports the show, listens to the show, and participates. Facebook, Twitter, all of that. Thank you, thank you, I can't thank you enough. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a longer one. I felt it was really important to cover two big subjects here. One of them being the living victims of Gosnell who can speak their truth, their horror that happened to them. And about the two women that were murdered from him. And also to the powers that be that that were negligent, uncaring, cowardly, incompetent, and a whole bunch of other words that I think could take up most of the rest of this podcast. So I'll leave them out. So let's get started. Dr. Gosnell was supposed to be a healthcare provider, a person that looked after people, cared for people, helped them out. And as we've known by now, he was a a sadist that was in it for the money. Just going to give a little clip here of of someone who experienced his services. That's the answer to a young teenage girl finding out that she's pregnant, still in high school, is to terminate the pregnancy. That was the place to go for your um, abortion. And you can go without your parents' consent. And if you got pregnant again within two, three months, you can go right back. You were going to take care of business um, to handle a situation. They did the sonogram and they said, it was, he basically was just like, oh, you're a little over 12 weeks. And I kind of was like a little over, like in my head, like I was like almost 18 weeks. And they prepped me, no counseling or anything. I literally felt like a part of my insides, like, ripped. I even remember just asking them, like, do I supposed to be in this much pain? I felt like something was, like, ripping, like, literally, like, ripping inside of me. So there you go, a first-hand account from a brave woman that came forward to talk about the horror that she went through with Gosnell. She was tortured, no anesthetic, went through the pain of having her insides torn out. Sadistic. I want to talk now about Shamika Shah. She was a 22-year-old woman who died from an abortion done by Gosnell in March 2000. I want to play another clip here that comes straight from the mouth of her cousin who had a seat in Senate and spoke on Shamika's behalf. And I think that she tells it best. Cut her in pieces. Her uterus was perforated. Um, Part of the placenta was left in her womb. He butchered her. Margot Davidson is Shamika's cousin and a Pennsylvania state representative. She says after Shamika's cousins took her home, her condition worsened. He told uh, her and her other fellow cousins in her same age group not to call if there was a problem because 
it would be trouble for them. She was rolling on the floor. She was screaming. She was crying. She was gasping for air and she was bleeding profusely. They were afraid to call the clinic. Um, they finally did call the clinic and got no answer, no call back. Finally, her mother came home and um, took her to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. So for two days, Samika suffered unimaginable pain from sepsis, a raging systemic infection, and slowly bled to death. She was a mother of two. Her family filed a lawsuit. The professional underwriter's liability insurance company paid $400,000 to Samika's surviving family. Now, this settlement was reported to the medical board, but was not investigated. They had all the details, the filthy clinic, the unsafe conditions, Gosnell, the staff, and his horrible medical practices. But they decided to turn a blind eye. They had all the evidence they needed. As you just heard from Samika's cousin, Margot Davidson, she stood in support of the 2011 HB 574 legislation that would require clinics to meet the same safety standards as ambulatory surgical facilities. This is the quote from when she stood in tears on the state house floor. Today, I honor her memory by voting yes on this legislation that seeks to safeguard the health of women that is long overdue so that never again will a woman walk into a licensed healthcare facility in the state of Pennsylvania and be butchered as she was with her uterus per perforated and her death of sepsis and infection permeating in her body till she writhed in pain on the floor of her home to her ultimate death. End of quote. Margot Davidson was the only African-American to vote in favor of that bill that could have saved her young cousin's life, as well as the life of Karnamaya Monger. With Davidson's help, the bill was approved and sent on to Senate on December 22, 2011, where it was also passed, in a fitting Christmas present to the women and babies. The next victim I'm going to talk about is Marie Smith. She is one of Gosnell's patients that survived this clinic. In fact, she is lucky to be alive. After a botched abortion in 1999, she developed a high fever and slipped into unconsciousness a week after her abortion and was rushed to the hospital. Here's a first-hand account from Marie. Quote, They showed me x-rays and said that he, Gosnell, left an arm and a leg inside of me, Smith told a reporter. I almost died. I thought he knew what he was doing, but I guess I was wrong. At this time, Gosnell had 50 lawsuits over the prior 20 years. The next person I want to talk about is Dana Haynes, who had an abortion by Gosnell in November 2006. She alleged that Gosnell lacerated her cervix, ruptured her uterus, and seriously damaged her small bowel during the abortion. Next is Davida Clark. She's an African-American who had been raped when she was young. She had become pregnant as a result of the rape. I actually have a recording here firsthand from her that I, I really want to play because I think that she best tells her own story. Here it is. Um... <sighs> I had um, started hanging around with like the wrong crowd around that time period. And um, I had got raped and I got pregnant. Um, and then someone told me about this clinic at 301 next to Avenue. I came in and they finally called my name. And I went upstairs. Um, and I remember just walking through and looking and I seen some women that looked half dead. And these bloody recliner chairs, there was blood all over the floor. And I just kept going. 
I didn't see him until I was hooked up with IVs and when they put the heart monitor around me, that's when I decided I can't do this. I just keep this desire, I can't do it. And he's like, oh, stop being a little, stop being a little, uh, a little baby. And he's pounding on my legs. Stop being a little baby, stop being a little baby. And now I'm outnumbered because all these women came in and I'm like tied to the bed. And next thing I knew, I was out of it. I can't have babies as a result. I'm married. I have a daughter that wants a brother or a sister, and I can't give her that. I want a child. I can't have that. Every year that goes past, I think of my baby that I would have had. Davida speaks for so many women that went through the torture at Gosnell's clinic by the hands of this monster and his sick and twisted mind and his sick and twisted staff. And you know if there was one, that there may have been hundreds in this very case. Desperate women in desperate times needing help and all he cared about was the money. The next woman I'm going to talk about is Melinda Williams. She had an illegal abortion when she was 13 years old. She said she attained it without parental consent. Williams was 32 years old when she came forward after the raid on Gosnell's clinic. And she told reporters that she could see bottles of jars filled with the remains of little babies and that after her abortion, she saw Gosnell cradling a bottle that contained the dead body of her fetus. I want to talk about Karnamaya Monger now. Karnamaya Monger's death was tragic for so many reasons. And here's why. She was born in Bhutan, a small nation near India on the eastern edge of the Himalayan mountains. Her family fled from dangerous political upheaval in Bhutan when she was a baby, and went to live in a refugee camp in Nepal. The family lived there for nearly 20 years in crude thatched huts constructed of wood and corrugated tin. In 2009, she went to the United States under a refugee relocation program. Meyer, her husband, daughter, son, and several family members of her extended family were on their own. Yashoda, was Karnamaya's adult daughter. She and her mother were very, very close, and they lived together, and they all pitched in to help keep each other afloat. They were all very hard working. They wanted to do well in America, improve their lives, be productive, have a great life. Seven months after settling in Virginia, Monger found out that she was pregnant. And as much as it pained her, she decided to have an abortion and that she thought it would be the best thing for her family. They were very poor and barely able to make ends meet. She feared that she could not afford to raise a baby. But her daughter, Yashoda, tried to talk her out of it. But her mind was made up. There were some assistance programs available for struggling pregnant women, but it was not even on the radar for them because they could barely speak English and they were new to the U.S. How would they know? Mongar went to a family planning clinic just 15 minutes from her home. However, she was turned away for an abortion because she was somewhere between 16 to 19 weeks pregnant. She was too far along. She was referred to an abortion clinic in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which also refused to conduct the abortion due to her advanced pregnancy. Then that facility referred her to yet another abortion clinic in Washington, D.C., this time, Monger never even saw a doctor, 
Instead, the receptionist handed her a paper with the Women's Medical Society address and phone number. Not knowing what she was about to face, she made an appointment. On November 19, 2009, Monger made the five-and-a-half-hour trip to Philadelphia in the passenger seat of a car driven by a relative by marriage by the name of Damber Galley. Monger viewed Galley as a brother. Galley had been living in the U.S. for approximately 10 years at that time, and he kind of knew his way around. He had a better handle on the language and the customs and just the surroundings. Monger's daughter, Yoshoda, also went with her. Yoshoda stated that after the arrival to the clinic, quote, medicine was put inside of her, quote. They were also told that her abortion would be a two-day procedure and that, that they would have to return the next day. So they drove the five and a half hours back home. Monger began to feel strong abdominal pain that night. And she, of course, should have been under the observation of a doctor, not five and a half hours away. After arriving back to the clinic, Monger was given more medication and began another five-hour wait. Her pain increased. And Yoshoda said that her mother was saying that, quote, it hurts all over the place. Yoshoda sought help for her mother and she was given IV medication and she fell asleep in the recliner. The nurse that Medicaid monger was identified as Sherry. She stated that Sherry gave her IV medications many times. After 8 p.m., Gosnell finally arrived. Yoshoda was asked to leave her mother's side and go to the main waiting room. And she tried to wake her mother to let her know that she was leaving, but she could not. The next thing that Yoshoda remembers was after about an hour, she heard ambulance sirens. She and all family members of other patients were ushered to the second floor waiting room where she sat anxiously for 15 to 25 minutes. As she was rushed out, she saw a glimpse of her mother lying on the bed in the dining room with her head back. Yashoda tried to go see her mother, but she was pushed back by Sherry and escorted out to the parking lot. She was terrified for her mother's life. She said that there was so much confusion and people were shouting and running around. What was going on inside the clinic was complete madness. Karnamaya was dangerously overmedicated and barely able to breathe on her own. None of the staff had attempted life-saving procedures. Gosnell knew what was going on but acted as if there was, it was no big deal. The paramedics desperately tried to get Monger to the ambulance via stretcher, but the emergency exit was blocked with boxes and garbage and the door was padlocked shut. No one knew where the keys were. It had to be cut off by the fire department. All this precious time was wasted. Sherry West rode in the car with the Monger family and this is when she falsified the notes and developed the story she was going to tell the ER staff, full of lies and withholding critical information that it might have saved Mongar's life. Sometime later, some doctors from the hospital came in to inform the a family that Karnamaya Mongar was dead. Quote, they said, we tried our best. Her heart just stopped working. Gosnell expressed no sympathy. The family filed a civil suit against Gosnell for wrongful death and the city of Philadelphia for not shutting down the clinic earlier. While the state's lack of action to protect the public certainly made it at least partially responsible for Mongar's death, the state was sadly immune to prosecution. Even though the state of Pennsylvania had enacted laws to protect women prior to Mongar's death, it never even bothered to enforce them. When laws are not enforced, there is nothing to stop people like Gosnell from violating them. How is it that we have more oversight in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania of women's hair salons and nail salons than we do over abortion clinics? Yeah, what he said. The government's negligence and cowardice led to the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands of deaths of of women and infants, not to mention the risk of life and limb and infertility or fertility. The question in this case, the one everyone asks is how could Gosnell's crimes have gone on for so long? Hadn't anybody complained? 
the state health inspectors would have had some clue about Gosnell's irregular and illegal practices? Would the disgusting conditions at Women's Medical Health Society uh, draw on scrutiny? Long before Carnemeyer Mogger's suspicious death had attracted John Woods, the detective, his attention? Gosnell's clinic should have been closed decades before his license was suspended in 2010. And there was a ton of evidence of medical malpractice and criminal activity. His clinic wasn't even qualified to provide abortion services. Under Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act, any facility providing abortions must have on staff, at the very least, as a consultant, a doctor who has completed a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. Gosnell was not an OBGYN. Gosnell's clinic in Pennsylvania was first licensed in 1979. The Department of Health established the fact that Gosnell was working alone by 1989, but the health department did nothing. The incompetence in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania's state capital knew that even by their own lax rules, Gosnell should not have been performing abortions. The Pennsylvania Department of Health certified the clinic at 3801 Lancaster Avenue to provide abortions on December 20th, 1979. At the time, it appeared that the clinic was above board. There was a staff OBGYN by Dr. Johnny Magee, and there was a nurse that worked there for two days a week. The clinic also seemed to have all the safety equipment and everything else in check. His license expired on December the 20th, 1990, and there was no follow-up, yet he kept performing abortions. The Department of Health supposedly returned for a site visit in 1986, but the state officials were unable to provide the grand jury with documentation establishing that an inspection actually took place. On August 16th and 17th, 10 years after the state first certified the clinic for operation expired, Two inspectors finally visited Gosnell's clinic, Elizabeth Stein and Susan Mitchell. Stein and Mitchell noted at the time that Gosnell was the only physician at the clinic, there was no OBGYN employed or on contract as a consultant, as the law required. Other serious violations, like there were no registered nurses on staff, were also noted. However, they ended up recommending that Gosnell's operating license be extended for another year. In March 1992, state health inspectors Janice Stolowski and Sarah Telencio paid a visit to the clinic. Stolowski would eventually be promoted to the Bureau Director for Community Program Licensure and Certification, becoming the Harrisburg official responsible for overseeing all Pennsylvania abortion facilities. As director, she decided that Gosnell should be allowed to proceed with the abortion that night of the original raid on February 2010. At the time of the 1992 inspection, Gosnell was still the only doctor at the clinic. There were no nurses in employment there. Stolowski and Telencio left blank the answers to the questions on the evaluation about anesthesia, and post-op care provided. They also certified that the building had easy access for wheelchairs and stretchers, which we know now was completely untrue. The three-story building had narrow corridors and no elevator. According to the grand jury report, Stolowski and Telencio on March 12, 1992 to approve the clinic to continue operations. State health inspectors returned again on April 8th, 1993, and it would be their final visit for 17 years until the raid in February 2010. Once again in 1993, Susan Mitchell was the inspector, joined by her colleague Georgette Freed Wolf. And once again, nothing changed. Gosnell was still the only doctor, there were no nurses, and the building had become even more cluttered and inaccessible. But Mitchell and Freed Wolf certified that the clinic was perfectly accessible. They made no notes about cleanliness or uncleanliness, broken equipment or staff qualifications. They did find some expired drugs and some contraventions of the Abortion Control Act regarding lab work and tissue samples. 
But three months later, Mitchell signed off on the clinic's license, stating that all the deficiencies were noted and had been addressed. Neither Mitchell nor Freed Wolf had returned to verify that Gosnell had in fact changed anything. The state renewed his operating license through March 21, 1994. The message that was received by Gosnell from the powers that be was simply this. Do what you want. We don't care. After Tom Ridge's election as Republican governor in 1994, the State Department of Health stopped all routine inspections of abortion clinics. When the Pennsylvania Department of Health ended routine inspections of abortion clinics under the Ridge administration, they said that they were still committed to inspections in cases of serious complaints about a clinic. I'm going to list to you some of the very serious complaints filed against Gosnell between 1993 to 2010. None of these complaints led to an inspection. In 1996, the Department of Health was informed that Gosnell had perforated a woman's uterus during an abortion. She had to have a full hysterectomy. No one from the health department visited to examine procedures or standards or to see if the staff were qualified. In 1997, Dr. Donald Schwartz, a pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, hand-delivered a complaint to the Department of Health reporting that several girls he had referred to Gosnell for abortions, had returned to him with trichomoniasis, a sexually transmitted parasite that they hadn't had before the procedure at his clinic. Schwartz also hand-delivered a copy of his complaint to the Pennsylvania Secretary of the Health Office. Nobody ever followed up with him. His complaints were completely ignored, and there was no Department of Health visit. When the grand jury asked the Department of Health to hand over all complaints, that it received about Gosnell, Schwartz was not among them. How many other complaints did the state health inspectors lose? The grand jury report made a point of highlighting that Schwartz case. Quote, We heard testimony from director of health officials who should have been aware of Dr. Schwartz's complaint. Kenneth Brody, the Department of Health senior consul, and health inspector Janice Stalowski, at least, should have known yet they made no mention of it to the grand jury. Marie Smith also almost died from sepsis after Gosnell sent her home with a fetal arm and leg still in her. She reported her condition to the clinic and was told by Gosnell to not come in and that she would be okay. Marie Smith spent weeks in the hospital. Gosnell, however, sang a different tune when Marie was in hospital. He visited her twice. The first time she refused to talk to him and asked him to leave. She also told Gosnell she would be contacting a lawyer. Gosnell immediately took out his checkbook and tried to pay her to forget everything that happened. She refused his money. The second time he came to Smith's room, she was asleep. He left a note, quote, this is Dr. Gosnell. I was here, but you were asleep, end of quote. Even worse, her lawyer for her lawsuit was corrupt. Not only did she end up with a tiny award, just $5,000 for Gosnell's near-fatal abortion, despite the doctor's gross and surely criminal negligence, but her lawyer, Nina Paris, turned out to be a crook who would later be disbarred in a separate case involving forged documents and other ethical breaches. Marie Smith never received even a dollar for her settlement, but she was able to help in the Gosnell prosecution, she supplied the FBI with the ultrasound images of the fetal remains Gosnell left inside her. Despite a patient's near-death experience because of the doctor's negligence, there was no visit or investigation by the Department of Health. Dana Hayes, who I also mentioned earlier, sued Gosnell for malpractice in 2009 for her botched abortion. Dana asked her cousin Stephanie White and Monique Carr to pick her up at 7.45 p.m., when they arrived, they were not allowed inside. The door was locked, and they communicated through the intercom. They returned several times and were denied entry every time, even though people had been coming and going from the clinic. After midnight, they had had enough, and they said that they would call the police if they were not allowed in. Then, there, they found Haynes slumped in a lazy boy chair, bleeding and incoherent. She wasn't hooked up to any monitors, and nobody was in the room watching her. Monique Carr asked Gosnell why he hadn't called 911, and he assured her that Haynes would be just fine. He said, she's safe. 
She's okay. Her condition is non-life-threatening. Thankfully, her cousins didn't believe him and insisted on an ambulance. At that point, Gosnell admitted to the cousins that he had been unable to remove all of the fetus. Doctors at the hospital told Haynes that Gosnell had left most of the fetus inside of her. Not only that, he had also torn her cervix, uterus, and bowel. She required emergency surgery to remove five inches of her bowel and needed a blood transfusion. Haynes had no health insurance and her hospital bill was $20,000. Haynes did file suit, but her lawyer was corrupt as well and incompetent. Her case was dismissed after her lawyers failed to file a certificate of merit, which is a notification of expert witness who will testify at trial. Once again, a documented botched abortion that had almost killed a patient apparently merited no visit to the Gosnell Clinic from neither the Department of Health or the Department of State. In the words of the grand jury, quote, no one at the Department of State thought Mrs. Haynes' complaint was even worth investigating, end of quote. December 2001, when former Gosnell employee Marcella Chung uh, delivered a detailed handwritten complaint to the Department of State about the horrid conditions at the clinic. She gave more information about the appalling conditions in Gosnell's clinic in a follow-up interview in March 2002. Chung's complaint was a summary of what the grand jury was to find over a decade of hundreds, perhaps thousands of killings later. She recounted all the horrors that would become to be known as well as Gosnell's performed abortions on children brought into the clinic against their will by their mothers. Their mothers brought their underage daughters in against their will. She said she saw this happen at least four times while she was there. She claimed that Gosnell was involved in extensive insurance fraud. This sick, serial killer son of a bitch could have been caught right here, if not at all the other times. And here's how the Department of State responded. First, they interviewed Gosnell at a government office in King of Prussia, a Philadelphia suburb. An investigator made a half-assed phone call to Dr. Warren Taylor, who said he had performed abortions at the Women's Health Clinic in 2001, and he remembered a case where he had refused to do an abortion on an underage girl. He couldn't say for certain whether Gosnell did the abortion himself later. Taylor said was all he knew was that he told investigators that he believed in do no harm, and he considered himself Lily White. A DOS functionary interviewed Ronald C. Cohen, a pharmacist at Bell Apothecary, two blocks from the clinic, about the prescription drug claims. Cohen said that he hadn't noticed any unusual prescriptions, though they did subsequently stop honoring Gosnell's scripts. Investigators did meet with Gosnell, but their written report of the meeting concludes with this line, quote, Gosnell indicated he would not be sending a written response to the allocations. He would think about it, but probably would not. End of quote. The investigators, of course, did not insist. They did not visit the clinic. They did not talk to the members of the staff or the patients. They made no serious effort to establish the truth and severity of the allegations made by uh, the member of staff who had risked her future career by complaining against Gosnell. On April 29, 2004, attorneys Mark Greenwald and his boss, Charles J. Hartwell, of the Pennsylvania State Board of Medicine, and the Department of State Agency responsible for licensing doctors recommended no further action on Chong's allegations. They stamped the case file, prosecution not warranted. On October 9, 2002, the Professional Underwriters Liability Insurance Company informed the, the Pennsylvania State Board of Medicine that it had made a settlement of $400,000 with the family of Samika Shaw, who... I had talked about before who had died after having an abortion at Gosnell's clinic in March 2000. In January 2003, the Pennsylvania Medical Professional Liability Catastrophe Loss Fund informed the Department of State that it had paid out $500,000 in the same case. In January 2004, the Department of Health decided further investigation of Samika Shah's death was not warranted. Greenwell's case summary noted how Shaw had been taken to the emergency room at the University of Penn Hospital in severe pain and heavy bleeding following a seeming routine procedure. 
Shaw's surgeons couldn't locate a perforation, and she subsequently died from an infection in sepsis. Quote, Although this is tragic, and especially in the light of the age of the patient, the risk was inherent with the procedure performed by Gosnell. An administrative action against the respondent's license is not warranted. End of quote. As said by Greenwald. Greenwald failed to mention that the insurance company report made their decision to award $400,000 based on an autopsy report which stated that Gosnell's malpractice caused Samika Shaw's death, that he had in fact perforated the cervix into the uterus. He also failed to mention that the $500,000 awarded to the family from the Pennsylvania Catastrophic Fund was paid for by taxpayers' money not by Gosnell. And and there's more. August 2003, the Philadelphia Health Department's environmental engineering section received an anonymous complaint alleging that Gosnell was storing aborted fetuses in paper bags in the same fridges that employees used for their food. Mandy Davis, a sanitation specialist, wrote a memo to her colleague, Ken Gruen, and the assistant health commissioner at the time, Isaac Melham, outlining the disturbing complaint. Davis requested a visit. Philadelphia Health Commissioner Donald Schwartz told the grand jury that notations on the memo seemed to suggest that somebody from the department visited the clinic. The department could produce no additional documentation. There was no evidence that the department took any action against Gosnell for his bizarre and insanitary mishandling of medical waste. He didn't even have an infectious waste plan as the City of Health Code required. On August 2, 2005, William Newport, an attorney with the State Bureau of Professional and Occupational Affairs, found out that Gosnell didn't have liability between July 15, 2004 to April 18, 2005. This is illegal and unheard of, but no action was taken. Cassandra Barger, a patient of Gosnell, sued the state of Pennsylvania for medical malpractice. This is why. Mrs. Barger was a recovering drug addict. She had used methadone for two years as part of her recovery, but was almost totally weaned off the methadone dependency when she went for an abortion. Mrs. Barger made it very clear in her medical history at Gosnell's clinic that she was in recovery and using methadone. When the staff brought her into the procedure room, Mrs. Barger reminded them again of her methadone use. Gosnell administered the anesthetic Nubane intravenously. Nubane is clearly contraindicated for people on methadone. Mrs. Barger immediately had a reaction and told Gosnell to stop giving her Nubane. Gosnell ignored her. Mrs. Barger pulled the IV out of her own arm and started to convulse. She fell off the table onto the floor, injuring her head. Nubane blocks the methadone absorption in the body and puts the person on methadone into instant and very dangerous withdrawal. Mrs. Barger's lawyer, Derek Lacer, filed a medical malpractice complaint and Gosnell himself filed the response. It was because Gosnell didn't have any liability insurance. This was reported to the Pennsylvania Department of State, but they already knew about it. They already knew he was uninsured and they didn't do anything. On May 4, 2006, David Grubb, an attorney for the State Board of Medicine, recommended no further investigation or prosecution in Mrs. Barger's case. His supervisor, Andrew Kramer, agreed and signed off on the decision. In 2007, Delaware County Medical Examiner Dr. Frederick Hellman complained to the Department of Health about another one of Gosnell's patients, a 14-year-old girl. On day two of Gosnell's nearly three-day abortion, She had delivered a stillborn baby girl at Crozier Chester Medical Center. Hellman determined that the baby was at least 30 weeks gestational age. It could have been as much as 34 weeks. Far, far beyond the legal limit. Once again, the Department of Health did nothing. Now we've gone full circle back to Karnamaya Monger. Gosnell informed the Department of Health of her death and the Department of Health responded by doing nothing. They deemed no further investigation was necessary. 
Goslin must have felt like a god, that he could do nothing wrong in the eyes of the law. No matter what he did, there were no consequences. It was the raid on the clinic for the suspicion of a pill mill that exposed him. Ugh, the irony! All the secrets then began to spill out. Finally, there were conscientious lawmen and women that wanted to bring him down. The following are the government departments that failed to protect the public due to their criminally negligent non-actions. Official incompetence, bureaucratic blind eyes, neglect, and apparent desire to protect abortion clinics' dirty little secrets from hitting the news caused by needless deaths and injuries. Pennsylvania Department of Health, guilty. Pennsylvania Department of State, guilty. Philadelphia Department of Health, guilty. Pennsylvania State Board of Medicine, guilty. Philadelphia Department of Public Health, guilty. Philadelphia Health Department's Environmental Engineering Section, guilty. All these parties were called upon to the grand jury. They lawyered up at the expense of taxpayers' money at the cost of $116,000. None of the employees took responsibility and pointed their fingers at other employees who were part of the grand jury investigation. Janice Dolowski is one of the worst. She was the head of the Department of Health's Bureau of Community Licensing and Certification, who was ultimately responsible for overseeing the care of all Pennsylvania abortion clinics. This is how she was described in a report. Quote, readily acknowledged many deficiencies on the Department of Health and her own oversight of abortion facilities, but her dismissive demeanor indicated to us that she did not really understand or care about the devastating impact that the department's negligence had on the women whom Gosnell treated in his filthy, dangerous clinic, end of quote. Stolowski admitted that she inspected Gosnell's clinic in 1992 and done nothing about the failures and deficiencies she saw at the time. However, she continued to rise through the department ranks and eventually reached the director's position. Cynthia Boyne was chief division director of the Division of Home Health, and she was responsible for the oversight of abortion clinics under Stolowski's supervision. And she didn't think an inspection of the clinic was necessary after Mrs. Mogger died either in 2009. Boyne laid blame on her negligence on the department's senior counsel. The health department's senior counsel, Kenneth Brody, told the grand jury that there was no legal obligation for the department to inspect abortion clinics. Governor Tom Ridge stated that regular inspections would place a barrier towards women seeking abortions. How the fuck does ensuring safety have anything to do with putting up barriers? <sighs> I've held it together pretty good so far, don't you guys think? <laughs> Is a dirty clinic better than a clean one? Inspections would be that intrusive and limiting to a woman's choice to have safe and competent care? J.D. Mullane a Philadelphia area reporter who covered Gosnell's case stated the following, quote, it was his administration, Tom Ridges, that decided to halt annual inspections of Pennsylvania abortion clinics. This happened because the Ridge administration felt shoddier clinics like Gosnell's would be forced to close if inspectors from the State Department of Health came through and did their jobs, end of quote. The deceit callous indifference and criminal cover our ass attitude and don't rock the boat attitude runs far and wide. I could speak for hours and hours and hours on the corruption of the government, but I'll end this with a quote from Christine Dutton, the Department of Health's chief counsel at the time, who was one of the worst offenders. She justified the non-action in investigating Karnamaya Monger's death as, quote, People die. Yes, they do. And yes, they did. Woo! Yeah, so there we go. Is this still going on? You betcha. There's Gosnells all over North America and even worse elsewhere. So... 
what are we going to do about it? The next episode, I'm going to talk about how the newspapers cowered out uncovering this case. Just, I'm going to touch a little bit on Gosnell's trial, and then I'm going to talk about some interactions he's had with people in prison since then, and some of his poetry that he's written. And I did have a really cool interview with Anne McElhaney, who uh, wrote a book, Gosnell, America's Most Prolific Serial Killer, and I'm going to play part of that interview. So that is what's coming up on the last portion episode of the Gosnell case. Now, before we end this, I want to tell you about a new podcast that is called Unequal. And it is by yours truly, Karen Wickham. And a good friend of mine, Jennifer DB, who has her own awesome podcast called The Fallout Files. I'm just going to play you a little promo right now, if you don't mind, a little shameless self-promotion, but I can do that on my own show, right? (laughs) This is Karen. And this is Jennifer. Guess what? We're having a baby. What? Well, a pod baby. Yeah, that's right. And you're all invited to the party. Please join us as we tackle life's issues in our new podcast called Unequal, coming to your ear holes on August 15th. Well, yesterday was the 15th, so the first episode is out. Go listen to it. It is about incels, and it's a no-holds-bar episode. I guarantee you that within the first 10 minutes, you're going to be pulling your hair out. You know, that might not sound too appealing, but go have a listen. It's, uh, it's very eye-opening if your eyes weren't already open. So anyway, please go check us out. Now, usually at this time, most times I do a Suture Room episode. But I decided to do something else instead. You see, today, one of the most incredible, talented, amazing singers, performers, entertainers in the world has died. And that's Aretha Franklin. She was, is, and always will be my music hero. Aretha was one of the biggest talents that ever existed. She set the bar. And I gotta tell you, Aretha got me through some of the most difficult times in my life. Most of the time I turn her on and I would just groove on down and have a great time. I know every single song, every single nuance to every lyric that ever existed (laughs) when it comes to Aretha. Now, yeah, I, I think that I probably did a good job of butchering her songs, but hey, it brought joy to my heart. I went and saw her in concert at a small venue here in Toronto called Massey Hall. It's, it's very intimate. This was a few years ago, and I was beside myself. She had a full orchestra and backup singers, and she was just glorious. There was a point in the concert where the song finished, and she was introducing or having a, a, a few words, and it went really dead quiet just for a few seconds. And I took the opportunity to yell as hard as I can, I love you, Aretha! And to my surprise, I almost fainted because she said, I love you back in that smooth voice. And everybody in the seats around me were like, oh my God, oh my God. And of course I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So yeah, Aretha Franklin loves me too. And one last little bit. When I was eight months pregnant, I found out that there was a lip syncing contest. So, bored, not really working at that time because I was ginormous, I decided to enter the contest and I did Respect by Aretha Franklin and I won first prize, $50. That's right. I rocked on with my big ass belly and won. 
So I just want to end this episode with my favorite song from Aretha out of all the hundreds. And I hope I don't get copyright infringement. Please enjoy. Go sing with those angels in that beautiful choir in the sky, beautiful woman. Rest in peace. <laughs>